Welcome to a Problem Squared, one of the few podcasts that has the decency to put all the words in its name in alphabetical order. My name is Matt Parker, Matt and Parker, of course, also being in alphabetical order. I am an author, mathematician, and YouTuber in that order, alphabetically. I'm joined by Beck Hill, also Beck and Hill in alphabetical Yay. order, what we do around here. Beck is uh, first and foremost an artist, alphabetically speaking, also a comedian, performer, and writer. So uh, I had to give you writer, not author, because I already used the A for artist. Oh, yeah. And, then, oh, you uh, and you write more than just artist, books. Author. Yeah. Exactly. And it just yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. So I, um, it's actually the reason that I went with Beck instead of Rebecca. Oh, do you really just to re-alphabetize <laughs> your name? Alpha- yeah. Yeah. My mom's a librarian. So, you know, figures. Yep. Yeah. My brother, my brother's in Dewey Decimal Order. <laughs> <laughs> when you said Dewey Decimal System, my brain went 526. Which? So I feel like that's probably. What is the it? Dewey Decimal for science. Natural science and mathematics, 500s. <laughs> and 526, mathematical geography. Is that from your Weird. topography? I don't know. This is this would be from actual maths is 510. I don't know why my brain gave me 526. But it's in the sciences. Is 666 about the devil? I'd find that very oh, funny if it They've was. missed a trick if they haven't done that. Uh, ceramic and allied technologies. Oh, I've always wow. said that, that they are the devil of materials world. Dewey got his heart broken by a ceramicist, and that was that was yeah. their revenge. Introduction to Dewey Decimal Numbers. If you'd like to know what Dewey Decimal <laughs> Systems are, uh, look it up. We're not going to do it. Look them up. Look them up yourself. <laughs> look them up. Yeah. <laughs> On this episode... Is it possible for a human to actually make a ding sound like a bell? I'll help someone optimize their usage of sunscreen. And we've got some messages from people regarding stuff from last episode. So many messages. There's not so many messages. There's only two, Matt. You're really making it sound boring. That's two. Some messages. (laughs) All right, let's get going. So, Miss Hill, how how has your month of July been going? Good. Busy. We finished filming Makeaway Takeaway, so that's gone into editing now. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, so still doing like the ADR, which is like the little vo- voice pickups and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's looking good. Super exciting. So the clock is, clock is ticking, counting down yeah. for the time during which you're not a massive TV star. <laughs> CITV's Soon finest. You'll be, you'll be too, too big for this <laughs> podcast. So filming the last day was so wonderful. And I won't go into too much because I don't want to give away what we did in the episode. Yeah. But there will be some bigger art oh uh, craft spoilers yeah 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 there'll be there'll be bigger makes at the end of uh, each episode which is very exciting and so the last thing we shot was one of these big things and it involved basically a neighborhood and all the neighbors knew each other it was all these families all friends and stuff and it was like really nice there's such a good vibe there and when we had lunch all the crew it was such a nice day that we decided to all sit on the grass outside the houses and some of the kids from one of the homes came around and they had a little notebook and pen and they took everyone's tea and coffee orders. And then they went and made tea and coffee for all the crew. And like a little unlicensed cafe. Aww. Oh, it was so cute. It was really sweet. Because quite often in TV, you know, everything's faked. Like you, you would sort of oh, yeah. get None people of to pretend that they're happy, friendly neighbors that like each other. But 
they all got on really well and everyone was so patient because filming is quite lengthy and it's going to look incredible. But I just, I had an absolute ball, really nice time. And uh, yeah, lovely, lovely oh, time. What yeah. a lovely end. I'll, I'll remember, remember that when you're a massive diva TV star in the future. I'm like, where's my trailer? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where's my child He's waiter? Slapping the notebook out of the kid's hands. I don't want your... Is I this, get my teeth is this a specially Dicca, brought in. Fracamato? Yeah, exactly. I don't know what they're called. Fracamato, <laughs> make it happen. Yeah. I don't know what that is, ma'am. I make the name up, you make that tea happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Love it. Yeah, can't wait to those days. Me too. <laughs> How's your month been? Go, oh, uh, good. Uh, as you know, I came off my bicycle. You did? But yes, while moving at a decent speed been off the bike now for a good couple of weeks, but I'm healing, healing reasonably well for the most part. You know what? I've come off my bike twice and both times I had a pannier full of luggage on the back. A pannier left. is those bike bags, isn't it? Oh no. Uh, it's like a toasted sandwich. Yeah. Or not the uh, Indian cheese. Oh, not the Indian cheese. No, no, no. Yeah. So I had my, my paneer panini on the back and I brought up my accident when I had some mass people down for some socially distanced outdoor drinks, like a bunch of us who normally work together doing live shows, obviously haven't now for over a year. We all got together outside and I mentioned my accidents. and It was no, oh, are you all right? It's, oh yeah, because your center of mass will be slightly off. <laughs> so one person's theory, uh, Hugh Hunt, if people watch the videos I've done with Hugh, was like, oh yeah, because you always have it on the same side, you'll be cycling slightly off to the side, which means you will have worn that tread down more than the other side. And both times I was oh. turning right. So turning away from where the mass is, and then the wheels have just slipped out from underneath. I'd cycled over 40 miles. I what? cycled, oh, I cycled in. So some other friends, different gathering, wanted to have a picnic in London. And I was like, I'll come in for that, but I don't want to go on public transport. There's a lot of coronavirus here in the UK at the moment. And a lot of people acting like there isn't. Mm -hmm. So I did not fancy. So you cycled from Surrey? Yeah. It's not that far. It's pretty far. Yeah, just it, it was like about under three hours to cycle in. Right, and you got to come home as well. Yeah, well, I went the... Which is almost a whole working day. Well, I went the... Well, okay, so I booked a COVID-safe hotel. One day, cycled in, had the picnic, stay in a hotel. Next day, cycled home. And I cycled the direct way, which is like just over 30 miles. And I thought on the way home, I'd go the more fun way. So I went the more long and meandering route, just over 40 miles. And I was just around the corner from my house. I was like within a couple of miles of home, going around the roundabout, uh, slipped out. Mm. Car behind me was two junior doctors. What? So they were like, great, now we're at work all of a sudden. <laughs> the, the cut on my knee was just deeper than I was prepared to go home and just Hope for the best. Just let the dog lick it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that antiseptic yeah. licks. That's what dogs famously lick things that that, that heal. And so I uh, went to A and E, uh, and annoyingly, in the accident, I landed on my phone, and so I destroyed my phone. Ooh. And so I had three and a half hours in the waiting room with no phone or any other way to pass the time while waiting for some poor overworked doctor to glue my knee back together. So, oh, it's so boring. I know, I'm oh just laughing goodness. at how it's it's like, it's a problem that that is such a privilege. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had to wait there for my free healthcare yeah. with an injury that's easily going to heal 
and I was a bit bored. Yeah. Without so, your tiny pocket-sized computer that you can normally have. Without access to all of humankind's knowledge in case I get bored. <laughs> FML, Matt. I know. FML. How do I, how do I survive? <laughs> I was going to ask them for some paper uh, so I could do some maths. And I thought, you know what? I'll just do the maths in my head. Because I want to go, like, these are overworks in an emergency in a hospital. And I'm like, um, can I have some paper? And <laughs> Can I just say that as... <laughs> Yeah. You are such a living stereotype. Like, I would try and defend you if someone was like, Matt Parker, is he a massive geek? But I could look like if, and they were using it as an insult. But even then, I wouldn't be able to defend you because only what? you could fall off a bike, talk to another bunch of mathematicians about physically why the accident occurred. Like, most of the time, people yeah. are like, I don't know what happened. And they leave it at that. And then when you're left without a phone, you're like, I know all past time, maths. Yeah. While I wasn't busy doing maths in my head and working out that the waiting music in the A&E at the hospital loops every 21 minutes unless they have an interrupt announcement. Because again, I couldn't write this down or put it in my phone. I had to mentally keep track of what songs I'm hearing when. And it's all like royalty-free music. I didn't have enough data to know for certainty the rules around when the music repeats. And I don't think they'll let you just sit around after you've been seen to by the doctor because you need to get more data. <laughs> if anyone works in A&E and can tell me, uh, that would be great closure. If you told them that that's what you were doing, they would take you in for more tests. <laughs> They're like... How hard did you fall off the bike? You, you said you weren't feeling nauseous so I didn't have a headache, but I think you've... <laughs> I got to. I had to buy a new helmet because once you've had an accident in a bike helmet, you meant to buy a new one because uh, you will have oh. the other one's done its job. It, 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 it absorbed it. the impact, but now it's busted. So mm. <gasps> very what can happy we do to with a leftover bike helmet? Still, Ooh. still got it. Yep. Hold on to yep. it. And if any listeners can think of what we could do with Matt's leftover helmet, I mean, I like deal. an arts and crafts thing. I've still got it. Send it to us a problem posing page. That's aproblemsquared dot com. And I guess select. I think it's a solution. Solution. Yeah. But anyway, the, the, the final punchline to all of this, I was under instructions to not bend my knee because it had been glued back together and you've got to wait a certain amount of time before you bend it too much. Otherwise, yeah. the glue stitches so no come proposing. out. No Exactly. Uh, so I had to go up the stairs to go to bed. And I was like, oh, I've got to go up the stairs very carefully and not bend my knee. <laughs> uh, it turns out I, I'm... More uncoordinated than I thought, because on the way to bed, trying to not bend my knee after my bike accident, I slipped on the stairs and broke a toe on my other foot. <gasps> no, Matt! Yeah. So, for the past several weeks, now my knee is pretty much healed. And all my other grazes are healed, <laughs> but I'm still hobbling because on my other foot, the other leg, I broke the longest toe. And... Did you have to go back to hospital for it? Were you like, I need more data? <laughs> They're going to be like, wait a minute. You Peter have brought a laptop with a spreadsheet this time to jot down. <laughs> but it turns out the advice is just tape it to the one next to it. There's not much we can do. So there you are. And ever since then, whenever I'm doing something ridiculous and Lucy's like, you shouldn't be doing that with a broken toe. She's like, if you get a tertiary injury, she will be out of sympathy at that point. Yeah. I don't know what the moral of this story is. 
I mean, the NHS needs more funding to get more royalty-free music in the A&E. Because 21 <laughs> minutes is not enough if people are waiting three hours. Our first problem was sent in via the problem posing page at problemsquared.com by one of our Patreon supporters, although they left the name bit blank. So I'm going to respect that as they didn't want to have their name. But if that was an oversight, uh, get in touch. Person, you know who you are, and we can add your name retrospectively in a future episode. They you have don't said, know it's a person. What if a cat is our Patreon? That's a good point. Or algorithm. Ooh. Whatever the conscious being or very good simulation of a conscious being is, I will happily name or version check them in a future episode. And actually, given the question, it could be a robot. They've said, have you ever felt like your dings were missing something? And just for everyone, whenever we solve a problem, Beck says the word ding a bit like this. Ding! There you go. However, this unnamed entity then says, what's the closest that the human vocal apparatus can get to mimicking the ding of an actual bell. You know, the more I read this, the more it does sound like a robot trying to learn how to act more human. <laughs> what is the closest? Just hypothetically with those human vocal apparatuses that we all have, <laughs> like how close to accurate should I get and still be believable? So anyway, um, but they support us on Patreon. So, hey, welcome aboard. Or it's a problem sent in by a bell that wants to know if it can pass itself off as a human. Exactly. And I've always imagined, if I'm being honest, yeah. you know, like the hemispherical ones, like like on a counter at a hotel. Like you get in the yeah, hotel lobby. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the ding I imagine. So the question is, what's the closest the yeah. vocal cords can get to that back? Okay. Well, first of all, I thought this might be relatively easy. Like I was like, cool, uh, I'll just Google person I mimics love, bell, right? Uh, every problem. Every problem out of the gate, you're like... Every problem ah, I think is easy. At last, that easy so one. true. This is it. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, I couldn't find Human Mimics Bell. I looked everywhere. I watched a lot of impressionist videos to see mm. if they happened to do the sound effect of a bell. I did not have the patience to go through Michael Winslow's complete back catalogue. Quite the back catalogue. I asked several people for help. I asked professors and then I asked our guest who I'll introduce us to soon. Exciting. But when I was speaking to them, I started to realise that I lacked the knowledge necessary to understand the answer. <laughs> like You know how in Hitchhiker's Guide they have the answer, but then they actually don't know what the question is? Yep. The meta problem of understanding the answer to the problem. Yeah. So I was like, Okay, there's a lot of terms and stuff being mentioned that I don't understand. So let's work out what sound is. And I spent, I got really into this, Matt. I, oh, I know. It's been a long time since I've properly learned stuff and I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, and then I had the problem of trying to communicate what I'd learned. So I have come up with this analogy. Gotcha. And uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see if it works. I'm going to step right back. And I, I knew you were getting into this because yeah. you'd occasionally want to give, you were so excited you wanted to give me so an update, excited. but you had to be so vague because you didn't yep. want to ruin e explaining it to me on the podcast. So I've never had such uh, vague phone calls with you in my life. So I'm, I'm very <laughs> excited. So imagine that you're on your roof. Got it. And you're going to drop a ball from the roof 
and see how many times it bounces. Gotcha. And I'm on the other side of the street. Okay, yep. And you drop a bouncy ball, you know, one of those Super Bowls. Yep. And it bounces loads, heaps of times. I'm on a, I'm on a two-story house, so there's going to be a lot of bouncing. Uh, yep. My drive is on a slope, so... Yeah, I knew you were going to do this. Let me get my analogy across, Matt. Sorry, we don't carry have on, time carry on. for your realistic, confusing just, driveway tangents. Well, it's such a novel, game-changing analogy. I don't know what aspects are important and what aren't. So I'm well, trying to give you know all what? of it. You'll know when you let me say them. Oh! <laughs> oh, good point. Good point. <laughs> so you drop it. Yep. It's a flat surface. It bounces on completely <laughs> okay, okay. flat and you're dropping it. It bounces loads of times and you're like, whoa, Beck, did you see that? And I'm like, no, that ball is too small. I don't know what you just did. And you're like, ah, okay, let's try a tennis ball. So then you drop a tennis ball from the same height. Yep. And it bounces not as many times as the Super no. Bowl did, as the bouncy ball, but it bounces. It bounces. And I'm like, ah, oh, I think I can see it. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And you're like, oh, we need to make this clearer. All right, I'm going to use a basketball. Gotcha. And then you drop the basketball at the same height. And again, it doesn't bounce as many times, but I can see it very, very clearly. Got it. That is how pitch and volume work. Okay. Okay. So the amount of times the ball bounces, that represents... The frequency and for the purposes of this frequency pitch and note when i use those terms they all mean the same thing i'm on board with if that if you get into the nitty-gritty of music nah. there's differences but for the sake of this 100 fre frequency pitch nah. notes Got same it. thing Big so the more frequently the ball bounces that would be a higher pitch so the amount of times it bounces more frequent higher pitch and that's how sounds are created, how frequency is created, because it's how much something vibrates. So if something vibrates very quickly, you get a lot of vibrations, high pitch. If it vibrates not as quickly, it's a low pitch. Gotcha. But of course, the bigger it is, the more energy it would take to get it to bounce as many times. Oh, okay. Yeah, big, big. It uses more energy. So like I can see the basketball, it's bigger, but it bounces less. It's why deeper sounds can be heard further away than higher sounds. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. The bigger the ball, the louder the volume. The littler the ball, the lower the volume. Got it. That is sound and volume. We've got that. Next, we're going to talk about partials. Partials? Partials. So. That's new. Basically everything except, I believe, for a sine wave, which is like an electronic like frequency, or a... Well, you you pulled a face there, Matt. I just, I mean, I saw the words. It's an electronic thing, no, an you're electronic right. no, sound. No, you're a hundred percent right. You're a hundred percent right. But as a mathematician, I think of it as the theoretical sine wave first and foremost. Whereas you're right. Like if you actually want to hear one, you'd have to generate it electronically. So I mean, you're my problem, not yours. Doing a great job. Okay. Or a tuning fork. Or a tuning Basically, fork. everything except for those two things creates multiple frequencies yep. when it's making a sound. Even a tuning fork, Those depending on the environment. Get, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So to get back to the ball analogy, if you were dropping your ball from the top, yep. you'd actually have to drop quite a lot of different sized balls. Gotcha. Yep. The bigger the ball, 
the more clear it is for me to see. That's the one my eyes are naturally going to focus in on. Gotcha. So just if I may say back to you what I think you just said, Mm -hmm. I come up on the roof, Mm -hmm. I've got a big Mm -hmm. uh, sack of balls Mm -hmm. and I uh, dump out that that sack of balls and there's balls of different sizes Mm -hmm. and they all fall, they all bounce, they've all got different And for the analogy, let's say that they're all at the exact same height, they're all neatly row, you know, in a neat row. You're not worrying about any of the other physics. Exactly. There's no air. And you're across the street and you probably know, because you've seen the size of of the sack of balls, that uh, there's a lot going on, but you can only really see the big dominant ones. If your basketball is the biggest ball of all the balls that you've got, I'm going to be... You're probably going to focus on that one. how... You know I'm serious about this because I haven't made one joke about your balls yet. I so. I introduced a sack just to bait you even further, but carry I know. on. And one of your balls is bigger than the others. <laughs> you got I multiple balls, Matt. What's unusual about that? Carry on. Let's say uh, the basketball is the biggest one you've got. That's the easiest to follow one. Yeah. To put that back into sound, if you heard a note being played, even though there's a lot of different frequencies partials, a lot of different partials, frequencies that are happening at the same time, Yep, you're going to think you're hearing the loudest, lowest part of that note, even though there's actually higher notes happening at the exact same time. Do you know what I love about your analogy? You've, you've come up with an, an analogy to explain like uh, the frequencies and, and that kind of side, but yet you've kept in the human perception angle, yes. obviously super important. So you looking from across the road You've still got the brain processing and ignoring and paying attention to things. It's love. I don't even know why we bothered getting an expert guest. I feel like <laughs> you, you've nailed it. I mean, no bells yet. Well, I, just, I mean, we haven't answered the problem yet. Yeah. So the loudest, deepest note, it's generally the loudest. Sometimes it's not, but let's, we'll go into that later. The loudest part is called the fundamental. That's the note that you perceive. That's what you hear. So your basketball is the fundamental partial. Gotcha. So that's the one I really wanted to drop from from the roof, but a bunch of smaller ones fell as well. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 And all the other balls, because there's a lot of balls that aren't the fundamental, they're called overtones. Great. So now we know about partials and how they work. So let's talk about harmonics. Okay. You can see my my sass drops a lot once you're getting onto musical terms because I got no idea what you're going. That now I'm out of my depth. So harmonics are when every ball after your fundamental is like in ratio to each other. So for instance, you've got your basketball, yep. but then the next ball is half as small as that, bounces twice as many times, and the next ball is half as small as that one and bounces four. Yep. Times yep, 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 yep. And the next one, next one, yep. right? Again, I'm just, so, I'm just, I'm instantly like, I wonder how bounce speed scales with size of ball. Does Beck mean half by volume or by diameter? And none of these matter. These are all irrelevant. Don't matter. Don't matter. I got it. Yep, Harmonics are just where, instead of having a random collection of ball sizes, yep. they're all in a nice relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. So you're getting multiples of the frequencies. Yeah. Basically said it yourself just then, when they're not in relation to the same ratio to the fundamental, that's called inharmonics. Got it. And that's why something like a cough is much harder to understand what note that is, because a cough is made up of lots and lots of inharmonics. It's a mess. So so inharmonics, 
like you can vaguely make out what note it is, but it's much more difficult than when you're hearing harmonics because they're all in relation to each other. So we've explained sound. We've got all that. Finally, before I bring on our guest, I'm very excited. This is a tangent I went on, but I really want to talk about it. You've got your fundamental and then you've got your overtones. So yep. overtone singing is a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're singing more you than one note at once. around the world. The, yeah. So I'm going to try and do it. I'll try. I've been Whoa. practicing a lot and it's not particularly no good, but I'm going to try and give an example. No, I what are you excited about There this? might be a couple of goes at this until we hear it. What you're listening for is you'll hear me doing a low voice, like a low sort of sound, and then you'll start to hear quite a high note, like a whistle. And that's because I'm trying to use my vocal apparatus to hone in on one of the partials to give it almost an equal amount of volume as the as the low note. So I'm going to try it. Okay, hang on. I mean, Beck, of all the practical life-changing skills you've learned over the years, that's got, got to be up. I mean, and what you're doing, you're, you're inflating the tennis ball. You've, you've got the, yes. the basketball doing uh, its business and you're picking another ball and you're focusing in on upping its, uh, its, its volume. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And in fact, because I wanted to know how it would sound if like an actual professional singer did yep. it. So I tracked down. Anna Maria Halefe. Oh, okay. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Hello, Beck here. Just jumping in quickly to say it's pronounced Hefela. Hefela. Apologies, Anna Maria. Every time anyone hears me mispronounce it, remember it's actually Hefela. We will be putting the correct spelling of her surname in the show notes. She's given me permission to play this little clip on the podcast so everyone can hear what you can actually do. Now, remember, this is all coming from one person. She's singing with her one voice. Yep. And all the sounds you hear, it's just her. So, producer Lauren, can you play the clip, please? That's amazing. That sounds like someone like whistling over someone else singing. Right? Yeah. It's just one person. Blows my mind. So I know that that isn't necessary in order to solve the problem, but I thought it was a really fun tangent that people might enjoy. But nevertheless, I digress. Let us get on to this problem. So to help answer the question, I enlisted the help of beatboxer, rapper, comedian, musician extraordinaire. It's Beardy Man! Hello! Oh, hello. I am none of those things, but it's lovely of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've sometimes pretended to be a rapper for a joke, and I think some people didn't realize I was joking. Uh, I used to be a beatboxer, and um, now I'm just a very tired dad, I think. Just a very tired man who is afraid of going outside. <laughs> Mostly that's what I am. But thanks for thinking of me. 
oh, well, you know, I really appreciate it. We had a good <laughs> chat and it was when we were talking that I was like, I need to find out how sound works. I asked you on um, Twitter whether it was possible to make a bell sound and you had a go at it. I don't know if you want to do that now or whether you would like to. No, I want, I want you to do it because I taught you how, remember? You did, I'm, but I don't I'm think excited I did. Come on. All right. Okay, well, back from me, she was like, is it possible to do a bell? I was like, what do you mean like this? And she was like, um, how did you do that? And I was like, okay, you just sort of whistle and say, buh, at the beginning. And it's not a good impression of a bell, but it's like the closest I have ever been able Can to get Can we have it again? It. It's far from perfect, because you can still hear like the hiss on it, because it's a whistle, so it's shit. But, it's got, it's got... <laughs> but you know what? If, I, if we played that every time we solved something, if we played that sound, people will... We'll go, it oh, that's the sound a effect of a bell. Like, they're not going to be like, oh, that's a person. No, it's like, it's sort of, yeah, it's close enough to a bell that you'd be like, I think that's supposed to be a bell. I can see but Matt on his video, he's trying to work out whether he can do it. No, no, no. I was just like, what makes it bell-like? And I think it's like <laughs> the decay. Uh, I'm not using that phrase yeah. word correctly, but the way it... No, it, that's it, the it, correct it, phrase. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, amazing. So, yeah, the it's way like it the sounds... the decay stage of the envelope. Oh, oh. You just got to get, and also like making it a kind of as sine wavy in terms of its timbre as possible. But I can't seem to get rid of like the, the, gonna, the, the gonna, white uh, noise. Translate for Beardy Man. Timbre, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is the mathematical formula of the difference between all of your partials. Yeah. That decides the timbre of the note. So, yes. And the timbre is what tells you whether something sounds different to something else. So, if the balls are all in relation to each other, because it's like twice and twice and twice and twice and twice, that'll create very specific sound. But if it was every every ball was a third the smaller, a third of the smaller, small, third the going on, your sound will be different, have a different timbre, and well, it might be because it's from a different instrument. Well, it's interesting you're talking about partials. So like in a resonating cavity like human vocal tract, it is trivial to produce partials which are they have like an integer, uh, an integer multiple relationship to the fundamental. Because that's how resonating cavities tend to produce like amplified resonations. Yeah. Um, however, in a metallic surface like that of a bell or any kind of metal sheet or anything like that, it's just vibrating and it has multiple different vibration nodes which will kind of cross-modulate with each other. So you get what's called inharmonicities, which if you hear a bell... Can you see why I had to look up how sound <laughs> yeah, works? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Matt will probably know what I'm talking about because you get these kind of vibration modes... In a, in a sort of metallic object, which you can't reproduce with the human voice, really. Yeah, so if I can say back what I think you're saying. So when you're, the, the human vocal apparatus is basically a, a, a gas-filled resonating chamber. And so mm. it will select out the harmonics, which are, which are whole multiples of each other, because that's mm. just how that kind of resonating chamber works. Whereas if you're hitting a lump of metal, there's far less selection on what frequencies will hang around. And so you end up with just a whole load of harmonics, which are all over the place. And you, you're not picking out the nice In harmonics, Matt. Oh, same In thing. Same thing. In harmonics is just harmonics you don't like. Uh, and so Get that on a t-shirt. From, well, from a mathematical point of view, I would just use harmonics to mean all the other frequencies that showed up. But um, that may not be a rigorous, a rigorous way to do that in any discipline. Uh, so you're saying you're getting a lot more interference and you're getting a lot more frequencies. 
there. Will, there's a more complex relationship between the different sort of resonating frequencies that will be produced gotcha. in a metallic object than there are between a resonating chamber. And yeah, you're exactly right. The resonating chamber selects for um, nodes which are in uh, into the into multiple relationships to each other. At the heart of it, I guess any instrument, a bell, a violin, a guitar, a, you know, trombone, is you, you're throwing a whole bunch of frequencies at it by hitting it or blowing into it or whatever. And it somehow particular frequencies are, uh, are amplified or retained, they're resonant and others aren't. And so that's just a much more complex process if it's a, because when you're hitting a bell, you're still getting a note out of it, but you're getting a much more complex collection of smaller frequencies than you would from like a, you know, classic gas in a pipe um, resonator. But I think in a metallic object, there'll still be resonances which will be a result of the shape and size of the metal and the density of it and it's it's sort of because it's like it's echoing inside it's it like right? a tuning fork yeah. yeah exactly and that we talked about in a previous episode we talked about phase phase inversion is that what you get is that what we're getting like when those frequencies bounce into each other are some of them cancelling each other out some of them will be cancelling each other out and some of them will be peaking because they're adding to each other so you're right. you're still getting a bell making sort of a few dominant frequencies and some are being cancelled out so you, you get sort of resonating nodes if you've ever stood in a room in a club let's say and you, well, let's say you're standing in the shower you'll notice that a, a particular point points in the room where you'll sing a particular note and maybe you maybe only i notice this kind of stuff but like you, <laughs> you'll be in part of the bathroom because it's a very sort of resonant chamber where you'll sing a particular note and that will resonate in a sort of bell-like manner so that will have like a long tail on it and if mm. you ever stop to think about why, there are different resonant nodes at different points in that room. So if you put a microphone that isn't feeding back at one point of the room, you can move it a couple of feet to the left, let's say, and then it will suddenly feed back. And feedback, if you don't know, is where you get a resonation. So you'll have the distance between the speakers and the microphone, meaning that a particular frequency, given the speed of sound in the temperature of that room, oh. that will give you just the tiniest little kick. It will just amplify and amplify and amplify and amplify. So it's that same kind of thing. And that's why you get that, woo, like that on the microphone when you're... Yeah. And that's why it's called feedback because it's literally the signals feeding back on itself and being amplified each time. But that doesn't happen all that well at every point in the room. But where you mm. get the distance between the mic and the speakers being kind of with a sort of integer multiple relationship to, say, the walls, you'll find yourself in a kind of resonant node in that room which is it's mm. all kind of part of the same thing we're talking about kind of resonances that are being sort of amplified or cancelled out the reason why humans can't do that as well is because metals generate these inharmonicities but i've got a handy tool to help me kind of illustrate what can happen if you introduce inharmonicity so there's something called a frequency shifter so i've got one here uh so yeah so my voice should sound sort of norm normal at this point but as i start to introduce the uh frequency shifter you should have a the relationship between the frequencies are breaking and the frequencies That wouldn't have sounded like a bell, but it does introduce inharmonicity. So if I manage to get the, the envelope, which is to say sort of the transient at the start and then the kind of fall off oh, hang on. at the, at the right. end of the sound. So we get the word envelope and transient. transient. What is an envelope? Uh, if you're making a synthesizer, let's say, and you want someone to press a note, and you want a sound to start when they press the note and then finish when they lift their hand. Pianos don't sound like that. They, they don't go boop 
with like a hard start mm-hmm. and a hard stop. They have a fairly hard start, which has particular sonic characteristics. And then as the string that has been hit by the hammer, as its vibrations kind of fade away and get absorbed into heat energy, you will hear this tail off as the energy in the string kind of dissipates into the surrounding air. That you would call the sort of tail section of the envelope or the decay. Or you, oh. could, you could call it the release. No, so yeah, so the way that an oscillator tends to work in an electronic circuit in a synthesizer is that it's always on. It's always making that noise. And you're just gating that sound so that you can either hear it or not to a greater or lesser extent. So like with, a, with an envelope on a synthesizer, you'll have like an attack phase, which is it, how long it takes to go from zero to one. Take one off. being Yeah, exactly. So like, like a slow attack would be like, but a, a fast attack would be like, dung, like that, duck, duck, like a hard. That's a massive attack. That's a massive ma- attack. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so like a bell will sort of always do that. You could cause a bell to resonate by kind of rubbing it like a wine glass around the outside, which would cause it to sort of slowly meet its resonant mm. nodes. But like, that would be a slow attack. So anyway, that's the attack phase. And then the sustain phase is uh, like cru- with something cruising like a, altitude. Cruising altitude, exactly. You've hit the, the peak, which is a sort of maximum volume. You then have a decay phase where it sort of settles back down to your sort of sustained Lens. level. And then your release stage is when you lift the key. How long does it take for the, the sound to be gone? Right. So that's your little journey with an envelope. It's like if you had a plane, if it was a fast attack, big attack, whatever it was, massive attack. If you had that and then a quick release... It would be like if the plane already started in the air, flew, and then just fell. It's like if you exactly. like shot a glider out of a cannon. That would be the... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but then the glider hits a wall. Oh, That's what oh, it would yeah. be. Like, like, yeah. the, then if you've got the decay, that would be if it was landing nicely. So, wait, so let's see if I can make a bell by sort of going boo like that, but with some inharmonicities. So let's yep. reintroduce this frequency shift. Those are bells. Oh my goodness! <laughs> That's amazing. So they're they're bell like. They're more bell like because oh you've got those inharmonicities. So the shift you're doing is not preserving the whole number ratio between the frequencies in your voice. Exactly. And because they're now you know irrational distances, our brains exactly. are like, oh, that sounds like someone hitting some metal. There you go. That's it. There is a bird that can do it, and it comes from your native country. It's the lyre birds, oh, and it's amazing. It but it it can it can perfectly mimic sounds that it's heard. So the lyre bird, as far as I understand it, has two throats essentially. Well, not two throats, two like resonating flaps, and they can sort of cross modulate each other. So it's able to do weird things like ring modulation, which is like where you sort of chop into the sound with a sine wave a bit like that. Which again gives you inharmonicities and stuff like that. You can hear it doing that in some of its impressions of things. Right, so to recap everything that we've just discussed, it is not possible for the human vocal apparatus to completely mimic the sound of a bell due to the way that inharmonics are created. I'm not saying it's impossible. There's probably some kid out there, some crazy beatboxer who's figured out a way. Oh, I like this. So I'm not saying the human voice can't do wild things like that. It says it's very hard to tune it and keep that tuning perfect so that it would sound like a bell. And you would also need to do it with a a quick attack and then it has the slow release. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, if you are going to sort of force your voice to sing two notes at the same time, they're going to wobble a bit because your voice isn't designed mm. to do that. And also, yeah, trying to get it to have like a perfect envelope isn't going to be possible. What I thought was interesting, the effect you were putting on your voice before to make it sound more bell-like by messing with yeah. the, the frequencies also made you sound more like a robot. Yes. And so our original theory that the person asking this question is some kind of artificial intelligence or algorithm Clearly, that stands to reason. It was I. I asked the question. See? And sounding like a bell and <laughs> sounding like a robot are in the same family that are very different to sounding like a human. Before we let you go, um, Beardy Man, thank you so much. This has been so helpful. But also, <laughs> I'd like to know, what is your favorite um, sound to do with your voice which uh, surprises people? Um, I've always liked this one. Not really my voice, just my cheeks. But it's lots of fun. Oh, but it's a it's yeah. a creepy sound, and I love it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, there's more where that came from. Check me out on the internet. We'll link. To, yeah. We'll link to yeah. things <laughs> in places. Yes. Yeah, excellent. Be, you're Great just stuff. at Beardy Man, aren't you? On most socials. Yeah, this has been really fun. Thanks, guys. Um, right, thank you. I hope right. that helped. I hope any of this was worthwhile. Safe, guys. Hey, mate. Bye. Bye. So it sounds like the answer is that the human voice might be able to mimic a bell exactly, but we haven't found conclusive proof of this yet. Got it. So technically, we have an answer. That is the answer. Oh, uh, I, I mean, mean, so I've solved it. Are we going to crack out our new and improved ding sound effect this quickly? Well, I'm going to... I think we've solved it, but... Okay. You know what? I'm convinced. I'm... Yeah. I would love to hear if anyone has been able to naturally recreate the sound of the bell using their voice. Okay. So if any listeners think that they can do it. Or find examples yeah, of people doing it. Let us know via the problem posing page. Select the solution drop down. Send us whatever details we need and uh, we'll go from Excellent. there. But in the meantime, we've found that it can sort of mimic a bell if you do the... That's pretty good. Or you can run your voice through a inharmonic modulator. Well... Beck, even if just for sheer completeness, I feel like, and ex extensive research, I'm going to give you a ding for this one. Our next problem comes from Florian via the problem posing page. And Florian says, now that the weather is getting better, I need to use sunscreen, otherwise I get burnt but I don't want to use too much sunscreen, otherwise I don't get a tan at all and I'm therefore more susceptible to sunburn. How do I optimise my usage of sunscreen? Thanks. Matt, you are going to take this wow. one? Wow, yeah, I, I'm all over it. So, I mean, uh -huh. we should say, I'm evenly distributed on this one, we should say we're both from Australia, Yeah. which has a long history of encouraging people to not get sunburnt and to not tan recreationally. I guess. Yeah, because um, you die. You die. It's dangerous. You get you get you get uh, skin cancer and and you're in trouble. And I remember when I first came to the UK in the late nineties. This is before I moved here, but when I first came over here for for a while, I'd meet people my own age here, and it was summer, and they wanted to put on some kind of sunscreen, and my poor brain couldn't. They were like, "Oh, what's what's the rating? Like the SPF rating?" But they wanted something not too high. They're like, mm. oh, I don't, I don't want to have SPS 15. How am I going to tan? And I just couldn't, like, was one of the more acute bits of 
culture shock I had. It doesn't calculate, the first time does I came it? to the UK. Yeah, I was like, but what? Huh? Well, the term here is healthy tan, which healthy for tan. us is very uh, like an oxymoron. That's like a relaxing concussion. It's not. Yeah. It doesn't work <laughs> like that. There's no, no, it's zero. Zero is the healthy amount of tan. Um, you know, I've actually so, started, I never used to wear fake tan, but I've started wearing fake tan over here because it stops me from getting comments from people over a certain generation and above saying, oh, yep. are you all right? Because they think I look poorly or sickly. They're like, oh, you're very pale. And it's like, this is my skin. Like, this is because I've looked after it. <laughs> I mean, Lucy had the flip side. The first time she went to, to Australia, everyone's like, Oh, you, you got such good skin. It's just because she's had no no sun damage. Yeah. Like yep. she's she's lived under a cloud for all of her life. And so mm. she's fine. And you go to Australia and you, you forget how you, you get to just seeing people with skin damage because that's just, mm. you know, the life over there. And I burn super easy. And actually, before we get into any of this, a bunch of it does depend on genetics and different people, depending on what your skin does, burns different amounts. So... I'm going to be talking consistently from a very uh, pasty white individual who burns uh, near immediately when exposed uh, to sunlight, uh, or rather when exposed to uh, ultraviolet light, which is the bit that actually burns us. So the kind of visible spectrum, not so bad. The infrared, that's the warmth. Actually, the warmth you feel, that's not your skin burning as such. That's the other end of the spectrum. So you got like the heat waves at one end, and then you got the UV at the other end of the range of frequencies of light, and it's the high frequency ones that are dangerous. So it's a bit like like so you go out in summer and imagine there's someone ball. nearby on a roof, yeah, <laughs> and they've got a whole bunch of balls, right? But when they when they throw the beach ball at you, you're like, that's fine, right? And all the big balls just bounce off, and you're like, this is just good summer fun. Past the little bouncy balls. They're the ones that really hurt. Yeah. And for a long time, we thought it was just, actually, the, the, the super small. Because they hit you more fast. They hit you more fast, more energy. And actually, for a long time, we thought it was only the tiny, tiny ones that were an issue. Actually, the super small ones don't even make it to you. They're so small that the air slows them down. They don't even get to you, which is the equivalent of the atmosphere and ozone stop the very high frequency ultraviolet, which is known as UVC, from even making it to the surface of the earth. So the incredibly dangerous radiation from the sun doesn't even make it. Thank you, ozone. Then UVB, that's like the highest frequency that makes it through. And most of it gets stopped, but a bit of it still makes it all the way down. And that's what sunscreens mainly stop from getting into your body. Uh, you've also got UVA, which is the bulk of the UV radiation, which Whoa. for a long time people were less worried about. But it turns out while UVB is what causes cancers, UVA can indirectly cause cancers. Like it still messes right. um, with your cells and bits and pieces. But it's more, it does things that then have knock-on effects that cause you to have an increased risk of cancer. Whereas UVB just goes straight into the DNA and is like, I'm just messing up the joint. So sunscreen is an attempt to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. And I did a quick look into the chemistry and you can either block it or you can absorb it. And I didn't realize, and we'll go into this in more details in a moment, there's a technical difference between a sun like block and a sunscreen. 
So the block is using things like zinc oxide. Zinc. Zinc, zinc, zinc sticks you put on your nose. Yeah. I don't want to get burnt specifically here and here at my yeah. school sports day. That's how zinc yeah. works. And then uh, when I said here and here, I was just indicating two nose. little stripes going, kind of going, or just one line down my nose. That's yeah. you know, zinc. Your other option is to use something that it will absorb, chemically absorb the UV frequencies. And so now there are so many different substances that do this. I looked up a bunch. You get like your oxybenzone, you get your homosalate, you get your oxalmethoxinamate. And they're all just organic molecules. But because of the bonds, different frequency photons will be absorbed by the molecule okay. and heated up. And so some of them will block UVB, some will block UVA, some will block both. Depends what atomic bonds they've got going on. Uh, and some of them break down. Like when they absorb photons, they break down, which is why you've got to reapply a lot of sunscreens. It's not just that you're sweating and it's coming off. Or... So when you say block just before, sorry, when you're saying block, you actually mean absorb. Absorb. Sorry. Yes. No, absorb. Yes. Yep. You're right. And that actually brings me to what people call the thing that you put on your body to stop the sun from damaging you. Mm. Because, and this is why we did a call out last episode for people who have heard um, the previous episode 020, because I had a thesis that the more sun a country has, the more negative the name of the thing you put on to block the sun. Mm -hmm. I first started thinking this when I realized when I moved to the UK, I would still call it sunscreen because it's, it's screening you from the sun. But a lot of other people would call it suntan lotion. It, and it's got that kind of positive, you put this on because you want to go out and get a tan, which I think historically, yeah. and this is why we asked people to put their age in as well. Historically, you would have put on a tanning cream. Like an oil. Yes, like an oil. So I spoke, so mm. a friend of mine, they remember their parents having and so this is only going back a couple of decades, like factor two tanning oil. So, And when you say factor, because we've, we've talked about SPF, is factor the same? Factor, you'll see it sold two different ways. Some people will say it's the fraction of UV light that makes it through. And some people will mm -hmm. say it's how much longer you can stay in the sun. And it turns out okay. both are technically true. In so much as, let's say, factor 30, it's a perfectly reasonable way to understand factor 30 as it lets one thirtieth of the light through, the, the actual burning light, compared to not having any on at all. Or factor 50 yeah. would let through a fiftieth. Factor 2 would let through half. And that does then mean, if you're wearing factor 30, technically you can be in the sun 30 times as long before you'll yeah. be as burnt as one thirtieth of the time with nothing on, no, no protection. Yeah. So no if screen. you went out for 30 minutes, it'd be the same as standing in the sun for one minute. Exactly. It'd now, be, yeah, yeah. the issue here is blocking it is not like a super simple process. It depends how it's put on the skin, how it's distributed. Very much it includes how often you reapply. And so in terms of compliance, mm -hmm. 30, like the SPF is like the best case. If you put it on properly and you reapply it frequently and you don't sweat or go swimming or any of these things, then that's your optimal protection, but it's, it's never going to be quite that good. Can you get that with blocks or the absorbing types? 
Yeah, both. It's the same. Well, this is where it gets interesting because the actual score, I thought it would have been like some property of whatever the substances were, or it would have been some lab test on the sunscreen, yeah. but it's not. The way they calculate the SPF rating for a sunscreen is to get someone with pasty skin to come into the lab and then they sunburn them. So they put on the sunscreen in like little regulation sized patches. They have different intensity amounts of UV light. They see how long it takes to burn this poor volunteer through the sunscreen compared to the same intensity light burning them without any sunscreen. And that's where mm. the SPF value comes from. And there are, depending on the country, there's different maximums. So I'm pretty sure most places, 50 is the most you're allowed to put on sunscreen because above that is getting ridiculous. And it gives people a false sense of security. Like mm. you'd slather on SPF 100 or something and then be super nonchalant. And there's a whole other world of people exposing themselves to more risk because they've taken safety precautions such that it undoes all the good provided by the safety precautions, which is a very interesting aspect of human psychology and um, safety. Oh, and sunscreen is just adjacent to like conspiracy theory, big pharma scare. Like, you know, it's not, it's not a vaccine, but there's still people yeah. online going, ah, but what about the nanoparticles? And actually there's a big yeah. debate on the Wikipedia discussion page about should the Wikipedia page say no, putting on sunscreen won't introduce nanoparticles into your cells or should it remain silent on the topic and all these things. So researching wow. it was not quite as straightforward as I thought because it's just in that kind of people making things up online and scare stories. So the SPF or, or factor or it's all the same measurement, it is technically how much longer you can stay in the same amount of UV radiation to get the same burn compared to if you didn't have any sunscreen on you at all. And that's just because that's how it's tested and that's where the number comes from. But you could also understand it as that's the fraction of light it's letting through. Gotcha. And so thank you very much to everyone who, from the previous podcast, went through and told us what they call sunscreen or sunblock in the country they're in. Uh, I went through all the data and I tried to tidy it up as always. And I and I had, well, I had to decide what counts as a positive, a sun positive name versus what counts as a sun negative name. And what I totally had missed is actually in the UK, it's almost overwhelmingly called sun cream. In fact, most of Europe it's either sun cream or variations on that, obviously in whatever the local language may be. I think some German mm. people were like, it's probably, it's like sun milk. And I did Australia, the UK and the USA separately. And then I just did a overall, all countries. Yep. Does US mainly call it sunscreen? Yep. Correct. Because, I mean, it's not because of that song, but that song, Wear Sunscreen, was such a big thing oh, yeah. in the 90s. And I feel like there was a generation of kids who heard that in other countries and went, oh, it's called sunscreen. The Australian one would just be like, wear sunblock. <laughs> yeah, block. And also the USA have a few blocks too. Oh. Sunblock. And then and so, yeah, the difference US... between sunblock and sunscreen, I'm guessing, is it's like 
the difference between having a bin lid and they all bounced off of the bin lid like a shield. Yep, 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 yep. But sunscreen would be like if I held up a mattress and the balls just thudded into the mattress. A Velcro one. Like a Vel- oh, yeah, like yeah. those Velcro balls. And they, yeah, they stick to the protective yeah, layer yeah, yeah. versus yeah, swatting yeah. them away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, we'll do my first thesis about countries with more sun have a more sun negative name for their their sun lotion uh, names. So if you assume that cream counts as a positive name, then the UK is, is like 92% of people replying gave a sun positive name. However, that feels a little bit unfair because it's it's such a generic name. And I think people would understand it mm. to mean it's a protective thing you're putting on. Yeah, because you put on an antiseptic cream. Yeah. That's to help things. You're right. Yeah. It's, it's more medicinal than, than sun embracing. So I switched yeah. the word cream into the negative column as well. And so in Australia, it was overwhelmingly negative, like over 95% negative. Likewise, in America, it was only uh, 6% positive responses. It was three from 49 in the UK, however, it was 21% positive. It was 13 from the 62 responses. Way and that's higher. getting rid of cream. And that's taking cream out. That's just counting things like suntan lotion as being positive. Mm. Uh, still one in five people were using a positive name. There wasn't as big a skew by age as I expected. The average age, and this is worldwide now, of someone using a, a negative name about the sun was about 29, 28.8 years old. And the average age of someone embracing the sun with the name of their lotion was uh, about 32, so 31.7. So there's only a couple of years hmm. in it. And the median ages were uh, sun negative was median age 28. Sun positive was a median age of 30. And I plotted them. And there are they're just way more positives, to be honest. So I don't think this is necessarily statistically significant. There's an ever so slight bias. The older you are, the more likely you are to use a sun positive name for the substance you put on your skin when you go out in the sun. Yeah, I feel like all you've solved so far is potentially where Florian comes from and how old they are. Exactly. So so they're they're very likely to be from Europe and they're ever so slightly more likely to be younger than older, but not much. Also, we're going by people who listen to this podcast. Oh. Like these are not conclusive. Let's not. Like what we're saying. <laughs> Let's not start pulling the thread on survey design and, you know, uh, integrity of my data. It's a mess. Biases. No, 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 no. <laughs> I will not be releasing my data for further review or analysis because it's just a uh, finger <laughs> in the air. So that's, I guess, is I guess our, our problem is from Europe. And their actual wording was they don't want to not get a tan at all because they're therefore more susceptible to sunburn. And this I thought mm. was very interesting. So I looked it up and it seems having a tan compared to not having a tan is a somewhere in the region of SPF two to four ballpark. So having oh. a tan does provide some protection against being burnt. Is that to do with melanin then? So having a tan, so if you're if you're born with pasty skin, and uh, to be fair, a lot of people who responded to the survey are obviously not Caucasian, saying things like, I'm fine, I don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, this is for skin that comes with no built-in protection. If you then tan it, you're going to get some protection against burning. And I've got two kind of non 
professional observations here. And one is, I think it's a dangerous game to play to have your tan and then be putting on less sunscreen because of it. I think that's, you know, a false sense of safety and you're going to end up with more damage. On top of, I don't think, and again, dermatologists might want to come in with a more nuanced view, no UV exposure is safe exposure. If you're exposing Mm. yourself to UV radiation, you're risking damage to your DNA, you're risking all these things. And so the safest option is just wear sunscreen, reapply it regularly, and minimize the damage to your cells and and DNA, and don't get don't get sunburned. I mean, that's the, unless you're part of a study into the SPF rating of <laughs> of sunscreens, in which case we thank you for your service. Have you got any fake good fake tan advice? Genuinely, I uh, I use uh, this isn't a paid ad or anything. It's not sponsorship, but I use a brand called Tanologist. They do uh, a foam version, which means that it, it's it doesn't really streak. Yeah. Yeah. I'd recommend a, 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 a fake tan foam. Quite quite good if you're the sort of person like me who doesn't know much about fake tan. There you go. Good advice. So going back to Florian's problem. Yep. They want to know how to optimize the usage of sunscreen because they think it has something to do with tan. But you've already said tan is bad. Tan's bad. So how should they optimize their use of sunscreen? By using sunscreen. Unless... You're at risk of drowning in it. I don't think there's an upper limit. And there's no nanoparticles or anything of this. You just use use sunscreen. That's how you optimize it. Put it on. I think there's one thing you haven't said, Matt. Mm -hmm. And that is if you want to optimize in terms of uh, get the most use out of your sunscreen so that you're not using as much, but still staying safe. Uh, um, That is, uh, don't go outside. Stay indoors. indoors. Stay under a shelter. Get a UV top. Long sleeve stuff. The, The slip. Of the slip, slop, slap. Yeah, that's right. Ding. All right, Beck, it's time to take care of any uh, other AOB business we have lying around. And up first, we have closure already on a problem from last month's episode, episode 020. We had the problem about the funniest way to fall down without hurting yourself. Andrew has sent us a tweet saying that with their dislike of sport, they guess their life is now wearing a Michelin man suit while dressed in full ceremonial Lord Mayor's outfit while kicking puppies on a bouncy castle. There's a lot of references which will make no sense at all if people haven't listened to the previous episode. Um, (laughs) However, they said the pain is the same. They laughed. Uh, They've decided it was funny. So they, they say ding, all caps, ding. Yay! Good job. Thank you, Andrew. Glad I could help. And we have some more any AOB from Neil, who is responding to a problem that we had again in zero to zero. This time, in regards to whether it would be possible to fix global warming if we were to dilute the atmosphere. Great, great suggestion. Using nitrogen. And Neil says, "Hi, Matt and Beck. I am a scuba diver instructor with London Clydive. I think I've pronounced that right. Clydive. C L I dive." <laughs> Oxygen becomes toxic at a partial pressure of 1.4 bar. So to dive to 60 meters, 7 bar, you need to reduce the oxygen content below the normal 21%. Nitrogen becomes narcotic at a partial pressure of around 3 bar. Oh. So below 30 meters, 4 bar, you can reduce the nitrogen percentage to retain a clear head. 
You can fix this contradiction by adding helium, which is non-toxic and less narcotic, to form a gas called trimix, which I think we mentioned on the podcast. Saturation divers who live for months at high pressure sound squeaky, not because of the helium, but because the speed of sound is higher in denser air. They also suffer from bone necrosis, so this is something to watch out for in your high-pressure utopia. Oh, right. Okay, I'm going to forgive them because the information is so useful for using bar as a measure of pressure. And the distances they're talking about is underwater as opposed to I was looking at the depth in the atmosphere. But we we would definitely need pressures way above those to dilute the atmosphere to a point where we can solve global warming. So we would definitely have to dilute it solely with helium. And it's good to know, actually, not just our voices would be squeaky. All noises would be higher pitched because the balls are just closer together. I think that's how that works. And so, um, but the, this bone, mm. bone necrosis doesn't sound good. I think they're saying it's not going to work. No. Yeah. That's a shame. We're so close to solving solving climate change. Not solved. You can't solve climate change by diluting the atmosphere if you want to keep your bones. I'm going to give you the other half of the ding then, Matt. Thank you. Full ding. Thank you so much for listening to episode 021 of A Problem Squared. Huge thanks, as always, to all our Patreon supporters who are the sole reason we keep making these episodes. You are all incredible. The bonus episode That's will be not up there. True. So it is. They're not the sole reason. Well, they're number one on why the we make very them. short They're list. the sole reason why we can. Oh, okay, good point. Okay, right. Okay, fine. It depends on your definition of... Thank you for being one of the, the sole reason why we can do it and a significant reason why we do it. Is that acceptable? Yeah, that's Good, nice. good, good. Yeah, I'll so that. yeah, uh, listeners, I guess, I, I think, again, thanks for listening. A huge thanks to our guest, Darren Foreman, who's uh, often known as Beardy Man. If you want to look them up online, we will link to them in the show notes. And they're also sometimes known as uh, Jay Foreman's brother. Those of you who watch uh, Jay's YouTube videos, I suspect we have a non-zero number of you listening in. And thank you to Anna Maria Helefe for letting us use the clip from her overtone singing. Again, we'll pop links to more of her singing or watching more of her stuff in the show notes and on social media. Don't forget, at A Problem Squared on Instagram and Twitter. All the socials. So I've been Matt Parker. Of course, we've had Beck Hill and our producer slash editor slash everything else is Lauren Armstrong Carter. Bye. Bye. Oh, actually, Beck, one last thing. We had a free text box on the, what do you call the sun thing you put on your skin survey. Oh, yeah. And yeah. a um, 34-year-old Italian just put in the box, Beck, is this your card? So I guess, Beck, uh, is this your card? <gasps> Matt is holding up a card and it is <gasps> not my card. Ugh. Move that one to the bottom. Oh, he's got a system now. I got a system. <laughs>